uh, it's not at all clear that we are in a natural resources bull market as different from a precious metals bull market. Pretty clearly we're in a precious metals and precious metals equity bull market, but it's unclear uh, as to whether that recovery will extend to industrial materials. Osino Resources is a Ross Beattie-backed gold exploration company in mining-friendly Namibia. Osino's district-scale land package is situated near two producing gold mines, one of which Osino's management team previously developed and sold to B2 Gold. Osino's founders and management are experienced mining professionals who have already successfully developed and sold two companies in the past seven years. Osino has an excellent shareholder base with Ross Beattie owning 20%, Insiders 5%, and Resource Capital Funds 8%. This is an exploration company with drills turning that you'll definitely want to pay attention to. Osino trades in New York under the ticker O-S-I-I-F and in Toronto under the ticker O-S-I. To learn more, go to OsinoResources.com. That's OsinoResources.com. Greetings and welcome back to Mining Stock Education. I am your host, Bill Powers. If you'd like to engage the show, please reach me at bill at miningstockeducation.com. And please remember that the daily press releases updated hourly for the junior mining sector are posted on my website, miningstockeducation.com, right there on the homepage or under the press release section. Well, I'm joined by, for this interview, with Rick Rule, the president and CEO of Sprott U.S. Holdings, resource investing expert. Rick, thanks for taking the time to join me again. And let's start off by talking about your key takeaways from the 2019 Sprott Natural Resource Symposium that uh, ended there about six weeks ago. Key takeaways, that's an interesting question. I haven't tried to quantify that. Uh, I guess there's a couple interesting takeaways. The first is that we are uh, uh, fairly early in what I think by all indications is at least a precious metals bull market, maybe not a broad natural resources bull market. And the interesting takeaway there, I I showed a 40-year chart, which I'm happy to share with your subscribers if they ask me for it, uh, which shows where we are in terms of the precious metals equities in the historic context. And the chart's crystal clear. We are either at the bottom or just off the bottom. And importantly, in the last seven or eight recoveries, a poor recovery was sort of 150% recovery from the bottom. Uh, A good recovery was as much as 1,000% recovery from the bottom. So it's pretty clear that if we aren't at the bottom, we are coming to the bottom or off the bottom, and that there is, uh, if past as prologue, a fairly dramatic move ahead of us. It's worthy to note that this bull market, if we are in the gold bull market, is acting the way others have. It isn't shooting up. That happens longer in a recovery. It's grinding up. So what we're experiencing right now is a normal and healthy precious metals and precious metals equity bull market. The second point, uh, and this will make your subscribers somewhat less happy, Uh, It's not at all clear that we are in a natural resources bull market as different from a precious metals bull market. The uh, price action in things like uh, copper and cobalt and uh, oil, at least until the uh, attack on Saudi Arabia and other industrial materials, has been very tepid. Um, Certainly at today's commodity prices, the incentive to increase supplies Uh, it doesn't exist. In other words, prices need to go higher in order to incent new supply. On the other hand, we are nine or 10 years in an economic recovery. 
and many people believe that that recovery is fairly long of tooth. So the demand may or may not be present in the industrial materials. So to repeat, pretty clearly we're in a precious metals and precious metals equity bull market. Pretty clearly, if past this prologue, it has a very, very long way to go. But it's unclear uh, as to whether that recovery will extend to industrial materials. The third point was, uh, and I think this is important to note for people who invest in smaller, more speculative stocks, that there has been a, a real hiatus in exploration going on for a very long time. So two things here. The big mining companies will need to return to the exploration sector, but for right now, discoveries are few and far between because it takes five or six years of development work to get to the discovery stage. And the industry as a whole has underinvested in exploration for a fairly long time. What that means is that we can expect a two or three year period without very many major discoveries, but the major discoveries that we enjoy because they will be so rare uh, could yield some real eye-popping gains. Uh, those gains will be scarce, but they will likely be dramatic. As gold has been rising substantially the last few months, what's your observation about the type of money that is or isn't coming into the gold equities right now? Well, the gold equities have disconnected a bit from the gold. The precious metals has done quite well, and the precious metals equities, particularly the very small ones, have lagged. Uh, we are seeing, to be sure, generalist money coming into the bullion. Uh, the Ray Dalios of the world, the Paul Tudor Joneses of the world, the Mark Mobiuses of the world, people who have been very unfriendly towards gold for the last 30 years are suddenly very friendly. So as to the question, what's coming into precious metals, the truth is everybody is coming into precious metals, albeit in a fairly slow fashion. With regards to the equities, uh, I would suggest that that's still mostly the uh, province of the precious metals uh, mutual funds, which are finally getting some inflows rather than outflows, uh, and sector investors. We haven't seen too much outside capital uh, come into precious metals. One thing that is very, very interesting, though, I have to say, is the sudden emergence in the speculative part of the sector by very young people. By very young people, I mean people under 40. Uh, traditionally, the appetite for the exploration companies, for the uh, precious metals microcap, uh, has been uh, among investors who are to be charitable, baby boomers and over. What has happened just in the last six months has been an emergence of uh, interest in the speculative precious metals theme from people who are, uh, I guess, uh, now called millennials. I would just prefer to call them younger speculators. And interestingly, they're coming in from around the world. Uh, so there's a, there's a just, I guess, the beginnings of a pulse of interest among people who were traditionally tech investors, or if they were speculators, were either uh, cannabis or crypto speculators. And just probably in the last month and a half, We've received inbound inquiries from probably 500 people under the age of 50, which is very unusual for us. Well, do you have any updated thoughts on how a resource investor might capitalize as a result of these gold mega mergers, which occurred earlier in this year? Yeah, I think that's a great theme. Uh, I think that continues. And I think there's two ways to play the game. Uh, the first is that larger companies, more liquid companies, have higher trading volumes because of the ETFs and hence a lower cost of capital. So you will see 
mid-tier mining companies gobble up each other and be gobbled up by the majors. And you will see juniors gobbled up too, both ways. Uh, and these have the potential to be accretive for all concerned, meaning that if you if you can find a company that's selling for less than one of its peers relative to the net present value of its cash flow and buy it, you will likely receive a takeover premium. At the same time, the resultant company will likely over the next year trade higher on all bases as a consequence of the fact that larger, more liquid companies enjoy higher trading volumes and higher share prices. The second thing that you're going to see, and you're just beginning to see it now, is that the byproduct of these mergers is that when a company acquires another company, assets that aren't focused either in the company that did the acquiring or the company that were acquired are resold. And you will see very much like you saw in the last decade, in the period 2002 to 2005, 2006, uh, smaller companies that are able to buy redundant assets as a consequence of these mergers, uh, assets that didn't re receive the love and care and affection from the large company, but will receive it from a small company. Uh, great companies were built this way. Silver Standard was built this way. Pan American Silver was built this way. Lumina Copper was built this way. B2 Gold was built this way. So there's going to be two games in mergers and acquisitions. One is to be buying the companies that are going to be taken over by the larger companies. The second is going to be, and this is more specialized, finding very high-quality groups who know how to buy and beneficiate assets that are redundant to the larger companies that are doing the amalgamation. Rick, I'd like to take a couple minutes here. I have a few questions about marketing and promoting a mining, junior mining company. I was reading through some press releases a couple weeks ago, and I came across a unique press release where a junior gold company had to comment on the promotional, unsolicited promotional activities that occurred around their stock. And the three takeaways from it, as I highlighted a couple things in the press release, was that the company did not condone the use of the sensational language that the promoter used. They didn't condone the comparisons of the investment potential of their company with whatever the promoter was comparing it to, and they didn't agree with the urgency of the need to buy the stocks today. When it comes to comparisons, because this is a, a venture uh, capital business, the promoter needs to lay forth the potential of the product, the project, otherwise there's no reason to even invest in it. But can you talk about what is a honest comparison and what should potential uh, speculators when they're uh, doing their due diligence on a company, what should they look for in these comparisons that the promoter makes? I think the first thing that you need to do is look at the history of the promoter and find out if you care what he or she has to say at all. Uh, if the um, employment history of the promoter was that he or she, she uh, sold used cars, uh, or had been in the cannabis business, or the crypto business, or in some business uh, unrelated to the business that they're in, uh, I wouldn't pay too much attention to the claims at all. Uh, as for these third-party promotions, while uh, it often happens that the promotion isn't paid for by the company itself, but is prepared but is paid for by one or more large shareholders, which means that the company has deniability. But a paid promotion is a paid promotion. Uh, and the idea that the company isn't necessarily taking the, quote, credit for it 
may or may not be ingenuous or uh, disingenuous. The truth is that the subject of how to read a press release, uh, how to take into account what they say, is the subject of a very, very, very long call. I, I can tell you a few things that are silly. Uh, the first is uh, the concept of in situ resources or ounces in the ground. Uh, a company may say our total resource base is 10 million ounces. And another company that has a million ounces is viewed at thus and such. And says, so we should, be, we should be valued 10 times as highly. That doesn't take into account the grade, uh, the cost of production, the time to production, the net present value of money. In other words, ounces that are produced 20 years from now probably have no net present value. Uh, it, it, ounces in the ground is an easy-to-measure metric, but it's a, use, a useless measurement, mostly. The most important thing is uh, probably uh, net present value, uh, after capital cost, and this can be, um, you know, I guess you uh, you discount that net present value number by the nature of the estimation. In other words, a preliminary economic assessment is just that. It's very, very, very preliminary. And so while it gives you some scope, that's all it does. A pre-feasibility study, in other words, if you get that number with a much higher degree of certainty, or scrutiny, pardon me, then the number is worth more. A bankable feasibility study is a document that's done to the lending standards of a bank and is generally much more thorough than a preliminary economic assessment. Any sort of scoping exercise that purports to do net present value that's earlier than a preliminary economic assessment is probably not worth very much at all. And any comparison that doesn't have economics included with it uh, is interesting, but generally fairly irrelevant. Have you ever not invested in an opportunity that was brought to you because you did not think that the chief executive and the company was doing a good job marketing the company? I would say that we probably look closely at only one in 15 submittals to us. Uh, a submittal is only important if we or somebody who we know very well knows and trusts the people who are presenting it to us. I had about 30 one-on-one -on -one meetings at Beaver Creek, uh, the Precious Metals Summit last week. So this question kind of comes out of my experience last week where I experienced a couple of the management teams that I met with. It seems to me that the catalyst and a lot of the potential that they talked about with their company it was too far out, even a decade to 15 years um, with one company. And I was kind of thinking that through and saying to myself, you know, if you're going to appeal to a retail audience, I think you need to be laying out some catalysts that are probably within five months of where we are today. Uh, what is your thoughts on this? I think it depends on the kind of company that you're investing in. Uh, without naming names, uh, there are uh, a few uh, companies where we believe they're extraordinarily good allocators of capital, and we believe that they're selling at a discount to net present value, and we believe that they will continue to invest in ways that will make us money over time. In that case, we don't need a, cap a catalyst. The catalyst is simply uh, the accretion of value that takes place under extraordinary management teams. 
Similarly, in a class of speculative company that I like, the prospect generator, the uh, process is more important than catalyst, meaning that given that they're not doing sole risk exploration, given that their business is employing their intellectual capital to attract other people's physical capital, uh, I am uh, less in need of catalyst. Now, in the pure exploration business, the sole risk exploration business, uh, certainly there, the question becomes answering unanswered questions. I am more concerned about the probability of a yes answer relative to the probability of failure. Uh, and the sort of scope or value of a yes answer than I am when it will take place. It has always amused me that a circumstance where there is a probability that an event will take place, but that the time is uncertain, uh, repels some speculators, when, as opposed to a situation where there is no probability. In other words, people seem to prefer a question where the answer begins with if, rather than a question where the answer begins with when. Uh, I personally prefer questions where the answers begin with when to if. So the nature of a catalyst is less, uh, the, the timing around a catalyst is of less importance to me than the probability of the catalyst, the credibility of the person proposing the question, and the value of a yes answer. Do you understand where I'm going with this? I do. And Rick, when I referenced the 15-year-old catalyst, um, I know I didn't give you all the details, but it's actually an if, not a when, the potential 15-year okay. catalyst. So that's, I guess that's <laughs> that was part of the turnoff. Well, I, I guess the only thing, the only place where that could be of use would be an extremely large deposit that requires higher precious metals uh, prices that likely wouldn't be built this cycle, but acted as a call on precious metals. Um, yeah, that was a uh, optionality. Optionality was a game that worked very, very, very well for me in the '90s when optionality was free. Uh, in, in other words, where there was no expectation in the market that precious metals prices would rise. Then, of course, it, they did rise in the last decade, and those optionality plays worked. They worked so well that people are willing to pay, from my point of view, much too much for metals price optionality, particularly metals price optionality that would take $6 billion or $7 billion or $8 billion to realize. When it comes to investing in these junior resource uh, companies, what non-standard and therefore possibly risky things are you okay with? And I'll give you an example of a company that's going to build a mine based solely off of PEA. Would you be okay with something like this in certain circumstances? Uh, almost never. Um, uh, we have seen too many failures building off PEAs. There are uh, people who have very low cost of capital, I'm thinking like Robert Friedland, uh, who do stealth construction off PEAs. Uh, in other words, they go underground to do exploration from underground, and lo and behold, the drift becomes <laughs> the production drift. But for mortals, uh, trying to go to production from a PEA is extremely risky. Uh, and, you know, history is littered with past failures. I'm thinking Rubicon and things like that. Um, very, very unusual uh, where sophisticated investors will permit that. 
How do you um, approach Sprott doing your due diligence on legal uncertainty plays? We had the Escobar mine in Guatemala, that whole contention a couple years ago. What's your approach here? (laughs) I don't want to speak for Sprott on the lending side. I will tell you. I will tell you personally that my um, my success speculating on legal outcomes is almost unblemished by success. Um, <laughs> so I, I try not to allow myself that luxury. If I see a company where I think that the markets have valued the outcome at zero, where there's a possibility of success, uh, I will often allow myself to speculate in that name. I will almost never recommend that to clients uh, given the fact that uh, any background, any success that I've had, anything in my background uh, that contributes to my success has had to do with mobilizing engineering support, geological support, and financial support, not legal support. Uh, so, you, you know, I'll, I'll leave it there. Certainly, if you have assets like Escobar, uh, where you have a tier one asset, uh, it is worth it for people who believe they can afford the risk associated with speculating on legal systems they're not that they're not familiar with to do so if they can afford that risk. You know, certainly when Ross Beatty went in and bought Tahoe, uh, Ross Beatty was taking the view that Escobar was acquired legally first of all, uh, and that his um, social team could eventually acquire social license in northern Guatemala. You will note that when Ross builds companies, he takes a sort of seven to ten year time frame. And Pan American has been very clear with regards to Escobar that while they believe they're going to succeed, they can't tell you when they're going to succeed. Uh, company builders often take a much longer view than speculators do. Rick, as we kind of conclude here, uh, politically and philosophically, you are a libertarian. How does that inform your approach to resource investing? I think it's helped me a lot. Uh, I assume that the government that's the closest to me is the most dangerous. I don't believe that political risk is confined to third world jurisdictions. The worst experience with political risk I've ever had financially, was here in the People's Republic of California. This is politically incorrect to say, but the truth is that money that's stolen from me uh, by white people, that is by legislatures, in English, according to the rule of law, is just as gone as money that's stolen to me in jurisdictions that I can neither spell nor pronounce. So I would suspect that a, a healthy fear of government the suggestion that there's probably nobody in government that has my best interest at heart, uh, I think is one of the reasons why I have succeeded in a business over 40 years where government has proven to be the the enemy of industry, um, basically at every turn. Rick, you mentioned earlier about uh, emailing a, a chart. Would you like to share your contact information? I'd like to do two things, if I may, for your audience. Um, I have enjoyed uh, helping people uh, understand the business, and any of your subscribers who would like 
can email me a copy of their natural resource portfolio. It's important to note that I'm a 66-year-old inadvertent ludite. <laughs> so it's important that people who wish to take advantage of this email me their portfolios with both the names and the symbols in text, not as an attachment that I may not be able to, to open, but rather in text. And if you would like that 40-year chart from Barron's Magazine, it's the Barron's Gold Mining Index, it's really, really, really worth having. Just mention that you would like the chart. I'm willing to do both the portfolio reviews and the chart, or either, depending on the uh, subscriber's preference. You can email me at rankings, that's plural, R-A-N-K-I-N-G-S, at SprottGlobal.com to get the portfolio rankings and, of course, the stock chart, which is, this is the the first chart in 40 years that's ever really made sense to me. You've been listening to Rick Brule, President and CEO of Sprott U.S. Holdings. Rick, I really appreciate your time. Thank you for joining me today. My pleasure. Thanks for the call. Silver One Resources is an exploration and development company backed by strategic investors Eric Sprott and SSR Mining. The company is focused on its Candelaria Mine Project in Nevada, where there is already a historic resource estimated at 127 million ounces of silver. The Candelaria Mine historically was the highest grade silver producer in Nevada, generating over 68 million ounces of silver at an amazing average production rate of over 1,250 grams per ton. The project has tremendous expansion potential as past drilling has out deeper, high-grade silver targets for future drill programs. Silver One is highly leveraged to the price of silver and is cashed up and poised to increase shareholder value. Silver One trades in New York under the ticker SLVRF and in Toronto under the ticker SVE. To learn more, go to silverone.com. That's silverone.com. Thank you for listening to this Mining Stock Education Podcast. Please subscribe and share with like-minded investors. Visit us on the web at miningstockeducation.com for more resources on precious metals and natural resource investing. At our website, you can also sign up for our free newsletter for interview transcripts, stock picks, and more. This podcast is for informational purposes only and is not to be considered personal legal or investment advice or a recommendation to buy or sell securities or any other product. We make every effort to be accurate, but the information presented is not to be considered infallible. It may contain errors and we offer no inferred or explicit warranty. If personal advice is needed, consult a qualified legal, tax, or investment professional. Do not base any investment decision on the information contained on miningstockeducation.com, our podcasts, or videos. Make sure you always conduct your own thorough due diligence before investing. Realize that we may hold equity positions in or be compensated by some of the companies we feature and therefore are biased and hold an obvious conflict of interest. For our full disclaimer, please visit our website.